Good morning. This is winter in PV, so, you know, we've made it chilly. I've warmed it up some, but the app isn't working, so it's going to be cold. So it's okay. You stay awake better that way. And this is a little more of an ethereal sermon, so brace yourselves. Last Sunday, we ended the story as being told in Matthew with these words. If you got your Bibles, Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We didn't really talk about that. Flogged. It's the act of whipping or lashing someone with a leather whip. It was only done in Rome to traitors and murderers. It was that bad. They would tie little metal balls into the ends of the tips of the, of the, the leather straps or sheep bones. It was brutal. It was painful. And you could actually die in the process of getting flogged. And then Matthew says, rather simplistically, and handed him over to be crucified. The tension in the narrative, which was introduced in Matthew 26, verse 1, where Jesus said, I'm going to die within a few days before the Passover, and the religious leaders who said, uh, no, not before the Passover, this has got, just got to wait. We want to do it, but let's wait. And that tension that was there in the text is now done. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, I'll be dead. But with the portrayal of Judas and the responses or lack of responses to Jesus in these various trials, he set in motion his death to be taken right before Passover. And so the tension is gone, and it's happening now. It's like the clock has been wound up, and now it's just tick, 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 and the events of the passion of Christ are, are dis, on dis, full display. Because the rest of the, of the passion narrative in Matthew, it just carries out the expected plan that's been set in motion since Matthew opened. The status of Jesus as a refugee, as a child. The way his teachings infuriated the religious establishment. His healing on the Sabbath in violation of what their interpretation of the law was the cleansing of the temple, his claim to be Messiah, his deliberate rattling of the cage of the religious leadership. The death of Jesus defines his kingdom, the kind of kingdom that he offers, and it defines the kind of king that he is. See, in the manner in which he dies, Jesus paints a stark contrast between the rulers of this world and the Messiah himself, the true power of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not of this world, and he does not act as if he is of this world. This king and his kingdom are very different. Our text this morning is very brief, so let's read it together. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. 
Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Siren. Siren. Simon. You didn't even catch that, did you? And they forced him to carry his cross. The story is important, and it's rather straightforward. Within this story, Matthew can be seen, I think, trying to weave together some of the threads of the narrative that he's been telling since the first chapter. So I want to identify this morning three of these threads, and we're going to spend some time letting them soak into our lives and our thinking. Thread number one, the kingdom of Jesus is upside down. This is a totally not an earthly kingdom. And Matthew's using a lot of irony to communicate in this section of his book. There's so many things that we encounter in this section that's so upside down. And we hear things said that, that really, is that really what they mean? You've got the judge of the world sitting on a judgment seat. And he stands before the bema seat of, of Pilate a lesser judge. You've got the governor, Pilate, who doesn't really govern. I mean, the Jewish leaders force the crowd to make the decision, and they're kind of leading from behind. And while the Jewish leaders are railing against the anointed one from God, the truth is revealed to who? To a pagan, and, and especially to this pagan governor's wife. The crowds, they just want to let a terrorist go. Let's have him live next door to us. Let this Jesus go. Yeah, just because we ate maybe some of his loaves and fishes. He might have healed my neighbor. Well, kill him. The criminal is named Jesus Messiah. And Pilate says he's not responsible for any of this. But in reality, he is. He is in charge of this trial, and he's in charge of the outcome. And the crowd, they're willing to accept responsibility for all of this. And inadvertently, <laughs> They have brought tragedy on the city of Jerusalem decades later. But that's sort of been the theme. It's kind of the way this kingdom has played out. Things are not what they seem. God's will works itself out through unexpected circumstances. Right? The kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if you get insulted. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. See, none of that makes sense in the kingdom of this world. That's not the way the world operates, but it is the way God operates. 
It is the upside-down wisdom of living in the kingdom that Jesus came to offer. In our text, Matthew gives, for him, a rather detailed description of what happened to Jesus. I, I can't help but think of what Jesus has just said a few days ago. In Matthew 20, verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way back, he took the 12 aside. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Fairly specific. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. It's what Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 50. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And what does Matthew say happened to Jesus? Verse 28 of, of Matthew 27, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted a crown together of thorns, and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took his staff and struck him on the head again and again. And don't forget, this isn't the first time. The Jews did the same thing. They mocked him. After the, the trial before Caiaphas, it says in chapter 26, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? He's mocked in, in Matthew 26 for being what? A prophet. He's mocked in chapter 27 for being a king. And these Roman soldiers, they just have, you know, they're going to have their way with him. And now, through it all, Jesus is very passive. There's no more nudging Judas to betray him. It's no more answering the questions that will get him crucified. There's no more maneuvering. The clock is running. And so the soldiers mock him as the king because that's what he's been accused of. And they put a robe on him, probably a faded red tunic of the Roman Empire. They put a crown. Well, he's a king. You've got to have a crown. Somebody go grab something quick. They form this thing as a crown. They probably put the thorns facing out so it kind of looked like a, a king's crown. They gave him a scepter. You've got to have something to represent royalty to complete his look. And they hail him as the king, and they make fun of him for their own pleasure. I mean, these are a bunch of, of young soldiers. They're away from home. They've got to do something and the fun soon turns to physical abuse. The text says the whole company was together. That would have been 600 men. So probably not all of them, but, you know, this, a, this is a big group. This is not a small group in their house. But they get their moment with this man convicted of treason against the Roman state. And so they want to humiliate him. Don't mess with Rome. But what's really going on? I mean, what, what's the truth? The truth is that this unlucky criminal standing in front of them, he is a king. And he isn't just any king. He is the true Davidic king, ready to take the throne of David. And not too long from now, he will say, I have all authority in heaven and earth. 
Matthew 28. And so they continue this whole upside-down nature of the kingdom of Jesus. And the truth is opposite from what they think. And the power of this passage lies in this combination between truth and ignorance. Jesus is what he is being mocked for. He is a prophet. He is a king. And these Romans, they take extra pleasure in this. Why? Because they hate the Jews. And if they, this guy claims to be the king of the Jews, well, we can really get him. We mock their king. But what's the message to us? The way to glory is through servanthood. The way to glory is through suffering. It's through humiliation, through humility. And sometimes the will of God is to take us through suffering. We want to stew and search and find God's will for our lives. But don't forget that we follow a God who does his best work when life seems upside down. And sometimes, here's a news flash, you don't get to know the will of God for your life. Then what do you do? You have to learn to have confidence in the promises of God. Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And we're not even to the cross yet. Life is often difficult, and we struggle understanding the will of God. But here we have a Savior, Jesus, is the, who has become for us the example of doing God's will, even when it doesn't make sense, and especially when it is personally very painful. When the kingdom seems so upside down, we have to follow him anyway. Living in the will of God is more about knowing and trusting his promises than receiving some specific direction to follow. Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Google Maps didn't help him. It was like, put in the destination. Well, you don't know where it is. Just go. Life is more about resting, resting in the sovereignty of God than wrestling with my own ambig ambiguities that I, I don't know what's next. And we must continue to learn that embracing the will of God is a lot about transferring my confidence, my confidence from my own tiny capacity to know what's going on and why to God's omniscient and completely wise understandings. Because let's face it, there's a lot of things in this life, in our contemporary world, we don't understand. They are not always as they seem to be. Whether it's a pandemic or an invasion, I don't know what God is really doing behind the scenes. Or cancer or inflation, or accidents, whatever. But I cannot doubt the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of God as the king of the universe. Because when he faced the most horrible abuse, he submitted to it willingly. For us, God's will is often unexpected, but I need to get comfortable with that. 
because the kingdom of my Savior is upside down. It's the nature of it. Thread number two, the kingdom of Jesus is about faith. Now, you're going to put your seatbelts on. To get, to get, we're going to get to the point eventually. But as we've worked our way through Matthew, I've, we've noted as we've gone some, some observations and a pattern. I mean, from the very beginning, we've seen what? The Gentiles have been very responsive to the truth of Jesus as Messiah. They kind of seem to stand out in the text. And the Jews, well, they've been rather unresponsive. They've been rather anti-Jesus. And those threads Matthew has woven through his book. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to draw the wrong conclusion. We think, well, the Gentiles, they were just very well and very accepting. And the Jews, they just hated him. We think that these Jews that are in the story represent all of Judaism. And we think the Gentiles that are here represent all Gentiles. Eh, not so much. What are the Gentiles doing in this text? They're not being very nice. But we think of the wise men at the birth and that Canaanite woman up north that shocked Jesus with her faith. Or the wife of Pilate, the only person supporting him in this time. So yes, there's this thread which highlights Gentile acceptance, but there's a lot of spilled blood in our text that describes Gentiles torturing the Savior. So do these Roman soldiers stand for all Gentiles? No. And why do we think the Jews who oppose Jesus have to stand for all Jews? They don't. Yeah, there's the chief priests and the Pharisees and Judas. But there's also Jesus. He's a Jew. And Peter. And the godly women from Galilee. And pretty soon we'll encounter Joseph of Arimathea. And so, yes, Matthew tells us about the Gentile positive stories and the centurion. They're all there. But what's my point? Better, what's Matthew's point? To follow Jesus is not an ethnic issue. It is an issue of faith. The faith of your parents, the faith of your grandparents, will not do you any good in the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom's about your own personal faith. You have to decide what's happening here. I mean, really. You have to decide who this man is that they're beating to a pulp and mocking mercilessly. Talk about cancel culture. Rome invented the thing. What Matthew is asking you to do is to look beyond the robe and the crowns and the scepter and the soldiers, armed with their swords and clubs. Forget about what they say about him. What do you say about him? Is Jesus really a king? Is he really the king? The things they use to mock his royalty, they're all things that kings use to what? To intimidate. They are things that kings use to enslave other people. Jesus didn't use them in his life. There's no robe, there's no crown, there's no scepter. When an earthly king uses such things, what are they doing? They're hiding their fragile hold on power. They just want you to think they've got all the power. They play the part of royalty. But in reality, the emperor has no clothes. They don't want you to know 
that their grip on power is slipping. And so they cling to the trappings of power. And what is Matthew asking you to do? He wants you to compare the badges of royalty with the ultimate power of the love of God unleashed by Jesus on the cross. Matthew's earthly Jesus is the king. And he has clearly wanted you to come to that conclusion. He states it in Matthew 1, verse 1. But the king that he writes about, he's not a potentate. He's not a Caesar. There's nothing fake about him. There's nothing proud within him. He rules from a cross, not a throne. And our king is so overwhelmed by love for his subjects that he will do anything it takes to help them to be ready to enter the kingdom. We see the love of Jesus for us as we watch him suffer, and that makes us follow him, not his crown, not a robe, not a, the trappings of power. His power is what? Love, humility, grace. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And by passively enduring the abuse and the torture for a greater good, he has become for us a model of what? Strength out of weakness, of foolishness, shaming the wise. You see, the kingdom of Jesus is not about your ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, or the color of your skin, or whether you come from some godly line. The kingdom of Jesus is about whether or not you believe in him as Messiah. Entrance into his kingdom is by faith. It doesn't matter if Abraham is in your genealogy or not. He didn't come to display the trappings of rule and power. He will rule, but this is not that day. And what Matthew is asking from each of us is to make a decision on our own. Do we believe what Jesus said about himself is really true? And as we encounter the story of his suffering, what do we learn? We learn that the obedience it took to do the will of God was costly. It was bad. Are the soldiers right to mock and torture this fraud? Or are the soldiers speaking truth and they don't even know it? Hail, King of the Jews. The decision is on us. And as you mull over that decision, one more thread. Thread number three, the kingdom of Jesus is costly. Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. The mocking, the ridicule is past. He now begins the journey to the place of execution. You, got, you can't do it within the city walls. You've got to get outside the city walls. And so as part of the humiliation of crucifixion, you carried your own crossbeam. Weighed about 100 pounds, they think. But with what Jesus has already endured, for him to carry even the crossbeam itself, not the whole cross, was a huge problem. And step by step, 
He carries the instrument of his own death in agony. And his face is covered with bruises and welts and cuts. He's got human spit and blood and dirt and sweat all mixed together. And as they watched him carry the cross, the soldier realized, you know, he's probably not even going to make it to the place of execution. And what good is that going to do us? There's not much of a deterrent in if he dies on the way there. So they got to get somebody else. They grab a man from the crowd. His name is Simon, and he's from Cyrene. Who's Simon? Well, Mark says, we're going to go outside of Matthew a little bit. Matthew doesn't give us much information. Mark says that Simon was passing by on his way from the country. He came from Cyrene, which is a cosmopolitan mix of, of Jewish. There was a Jewish um, um, settlement's not the right word. I don't know. There was a Jewish colony in Cyrene. It's about, I think it's 115 miles east of Benghazi. They're in Syria, modern Syria. But it's unclear whether he lived in Jerusalem, because there was a Cyrene synagogue in Jerusalem, or if he was in town just to celebrate the Passover. But he was a part of this large crowd who had come to, to Jerusalem that day. It's Passover day. It's time to, to get things going. And probably, at least for him, it was the highlight of the calendar year. And if he was from out of town, boy, this is the place you want to be. Jerusalem for Passover. Like New York City on New Year's Eve. Don't miss the experience. When Matthew says they forced Simon to carry the cross, he uses that same verb in Matthew 5 where he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. It carries the idea of being grabbed and conscripted, compelled to do something that you probably don't want to do. Roman, citizen, Roman soldiers could commandeer citizens to carry their bags for a mile. You'd had no, you had to do it. And so such a demand would probably infuriate any Jew. I'm going this way and you're going that way, but I got to carry your bag. And so this brute force was to accomplish the goal, so they grabbed him out of the crowd. Did they know he was from Cyrene? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Did they ask him nicely? These are Roman soldiers. Probably not. Did they threaten him? Maybe. We don't know. Did he have a choice? <laughs> no, we do know that. I don't think they were bargaining <laughs> that day. And in a space of a moment, Simon went from being in the one place he most wanted to be to being anywhere else but there. And amongst the commotion and the shouts and the cheering and the weeping, they grab him out of the crowd. And he is compelled to join the greatest drama in human history. Mark and Luke add two fascinating details. Mark 15, 21 says, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is that important? Well, apparently Mark knew these two sons, Alexander and Rufus, or else why mention them? Maybe Alexander and Rufus became followers of Jesus and were known to the believers in Rome, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark. Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Rufus, hmm. chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Well, could the Rufus of Romans 16 be the son of Simon of Cyrene? If so, then Simon's wife, get this, uh, the mother of Rufus, had become a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. 
if that reconstruction of the facts is correct, then it means that Simon first followed Jesus himself and probably later led his family to faith. But how did he become a believer? Well, there's an interesting phrase in the book of Luke that only he mentions. He says that Simon was compelled to carry the cross behind Jesus. Luke 23, 20, 23, 26. Let that linger in your mind for a moment. Simon's grabbed out of the crowd by a bunch of soldiers. They make him drag this heavy wooden crossbeam across the, the hard streets of Jerusalem. Probably happened so fast he had no time to think. The soldiers didn't care about Jews anyway, so what do they care? Couldn't talk back, he just had to do it. But as he's walking down the street, he's got to be asking himself, who is this guy? He's beaten so badly. What, what, have they, what has he done to deserve this? Seems like people are glad this is going on, but some are crying. Who is he? What's he done? Why am I following him? And if I understand human nature at all, what do you, what do, you do at the scene of an accident? <laughs> oh, man, you want to find out. So he probably hung around and watched the events of the cross which apparently changed his life that day. But that leads me really to ask another question. Why Simon? Better question. Why yank a stranger out of the crowd? Where are the disciples? Where's Peter or Andrew or John or James or Bartholomew? or our dear Matthew, or Thomas, or James the son of Alphaeus, or Thaddeus, or Simon the Zealot. Where are they? Why weren't they following the steps of Jesus so closely that one of them would have been conscripted to carry the cross? You might expect at least one of them to share the burden this day. What did Jesus call them to do anyway? Matthew 16, he said to his disciples, you want to be one of my disciples? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And what had Peter said the week before? Peter had said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But the soldiers had to draft a stranger. Because there's no disciple around. And the soldiers are putting to shame all the claims we disciples make about how committed we are. But let's look at Jesus first. Even as his disciples are unfaithful, he is ever more faithful. We find him submitting to the Father's will no matter where that leads him, no matter what it costs him, and no matter how much pain is inflicted on him personally. And then we look at ourselves. How many sermons have you heard where you readily agree to follow Jesus to the death, but you're too afraid to even mention his name in public? How many sermons have you heard where you readily agreed to follow Jesus to the death, but you can't or you won't fix that bad relationship in your life. Yeah, some of them are beyond repair. I get that. But as far as it concerns you, be at peace with all, Paul.
Paul says. How many sermons have you heard, but you readily agree to follow Jesus to the death, but he is not making any difference in the way you live your life or spend your money and use your time? Now, I could go a lot of places. We could raise a lot of guilt this morning. But look at your Savior. He has been so abused that he cannot even carry his own cross. Do we take that so lightly that we live like the world and not like a follower as if this is our king? Because you come back to that same issue in thread number two. Is Jesus king? Is he really the king? You can't encounter this story, I don't think, and remain neutral about who Jesus Christ is. Because Jesus claims to be the ultimate king. And no matter what we think about him, no matter what these people thought about him, here he is claiming to be our king, walking through Jerusalem in such a weakened condition that somebody else has to help him carry his cross. Surrounded by strangers, the king of kings, the ruler of the universe, occupying the lowest place that men in all their evil could have ever invent. He is beaten and mocked and bleeding, and he's soon going to be left to die alone on a cross. And put that into a larger context. As the early church looks back on who this was and what they've learned, they believed this, Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who's walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he have appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Most people didn't understand who he was when he was here the first time. Tucked away in 1 Corinthians 2 is a little phrase that kind of helps us understand our text a little bit better. Speaking of the rulers of this world, Paul says that they didn't understand God's wisdom. Why? None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had. If they had known, if they had understood, but they didn't. Pilate didn't really know. He'd heard the stories and the rumors maybe about the miracles. The Roman soldiers, they didn't really know who Jesus was. They heard the charges and they knew he could not really have been the king of the Jews. And they all stand guilty of a terrible crime, the crime of crucifying the Lord of glory. But then I think of Simon from Cyrene. He kind of stands for us. 
He shows us what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Here's a story of a man, really, who picks up an accidental cross. He didn't know either. But he came our model. And a story like his is repeated in all four of the Gospels. It has enormous meaning. The Bible doesn't waste words. Sometimes we find a cross, and sometimes a cross finds us. And that was Simon's story. His cross is completely accidental. But it became a saving cross for him and his family. Have you ever found the cross? Has the cross ever found you? If Simon could speak to us through the centuries, he would say, I found my cross. Have you found yours? Because we all have choices to make. We all have a decision. Who is this king of glory? Are we really willing to follow him and take up our cross, especially in the painful moments of life? And there are many. Are we ready to follow where Jesus leads? I couldn't think of a good way to end, so we're just going to end. Because the story is so important. And we need to know the details. We need to know what they did to our Savior and our King. And we need to be willing to walk in his footsteps. Because <laughs> it will not be easy. But we need to come to the place in each of our lives where we make a decision. Is Jesus who he said he is or not? This morning, just believe, if you never have, that he is who he says he is. And that what he is going through on the cross will cover and pay for my sin and the debt that I owe God for the horrible life and the horrible decisions I've made. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you that we have a king who is not like a king of this world. You didn't come with a crown and a robe and a scepter of power. You came to teach us of the character of God who, although you, didn't, you existed in the form of God, you didn't regard that as something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself that that pattern might be found in us. In, in the daily, just tensions of life, we might empty ourselves and we might follow you even though it's painful because you are our king. And we love you. And we learn that so clearly through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.